Sorry, my my puppy is uh, he was stepping on my court, so oh, okay. I, had to, I had to grab him. Um, puppy is a good example of the things. Dude, I was just thinking that. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pencils. I'm your host, Parker Setacase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I really love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is going to be a really challenging one for me, but I picked it because I need to learn this stuff. So we're going to be talking about uh, sortals. If you don't know what those are, stay tuned. You're going to learn all about sortals. You're going to be an expert after this. So uh, yeah, that's going to be great. I have with me uh, Dr. Justin Mooney, and he just finished up at UMass uh, teaching philosophy there. And I think there's a big announcement coming, not on this channel, but uh, you guys can look forward to that where he's at. He is a hippo enthusiast as well, as, as you all see. Um, I'm excited. We're going to talk about a recent paper that he uh, just produced. I think it was just released today for Noose, and uh, it's about Sortles and his unique take on Sortles. We're going to go at all the uh, substantialists when it comes to Sortles. So uh, stay tuned. You're going to learn all about this. It's going to be metaphysics heavy. I'm excited for it. Uh, but before we jump in, I want to thank everyone who's making this podcast happen uh, by supporting it on Patreon. The Patreon patrons are the best. I love you guys so much. Thank you for supporting the podcast. If you've benefited from this podcast yourself and you haven't yet uh, jumped on board on Patreon, please consider doing that. You can find the link in the description wherever you're getting this podcast at. And you can join for various different uh, amounts every month. You can do uh, three, five, all the way up to 100. If you... If you commit to 100, then you are basically part of my family. You can find that there. There's lots of different benefits that come at different levels. So uh, please do consider that. And if not, or if you want to go above and beyond, you can find the super thanks button right around here. And you can just give a one-time gift uh, to say super thanks. That would be huge. Um, awesome. All right. Well, that's enough of that. Let's jump in on Sortles with Dr. Justin Mooney. Justin, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Should be fun conversation. Yeah, yeah. I've been been wanting to do this for a while, and I saw your uh, you post about this paper on sortals, and I was like, okay, I hear people talk about sortals. I have a very loose grasp on it of what they mean, and so I need to like force myself in on it. So uh, I'm really excited, and I was going to bring up uh, how you talk about hippos all the time in your class, and I was going to kind of razz you about that, but then I see you show up with the most hippos I've ever seen in my life. So uh, <laughs> you beat me to it there. What What's with the hippos for the audience? Yeah, I just love hippos. They're they're my favorite animal, and okay. I love animals in general. So I really love hippos. <laughs> yeah, awesome. when I teach um, all of my classes, I do daily hippo facts, mm. uh, one each each class session at the beginning. Uh, it's one of the things that students like the best about my classes. Oh, that's right. Yeah. They were saying that on your, uh, on your teacher reviews. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Well, Justin, I I hate to put you on the spot here, man, but do you have a hippo fact for us today? Sure. Yeah. Um, one of my favorites is, uh, that hippos secrete this sweat like substance that has like four or five different functions. It works as sunblock insect okay. repellent, antibacterial, air conditioning, skin moisturizer, and the coolest thing is it's pink. So they oh. basically have pink sweat. <laughs> what? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Wow, okay. I know I know there's some frogs that that have like the sunscreen type of stuff. 
but I did not know that about hippos. That is a good hippo fact, man. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, you like frogs, don't you? I love frogs. I love turtles. That's my jam. Uh, yeah. I love dogs. Um, yeah, I, tur- animals are awesome. I love What's, animals. What is your favorite species of frog? Oh, man, there's so many really cool ones, but I think probably giant African bullfrogs. That's what I have. Same. Dude, Those let's go. Favorite species of frog as well. That's crazy. Oh, holy cow. Uh, they like the hippo of frogs. They, they're so fat. <laughs> they are. They are. They're uh, African animals are really cool. You know, like just there's something about them. And they're all like crazy. You know, I mean, hippos, they got those nasty teeth and everything. I, I, I heard they're responsible for more deaths than crocodiles. Is that? Yeah. You're the guy to ask on that. That's true. Yes, that's true. Okay. Wow. Yes. They also wow. sometimes bite crocodiles in half. Jeez. At least one of my one of my books as a kid, one of my hippo books, yeah. told me that. So <laughs> if that's a reliable source. Yeah. Right. Well, so the the giant African bullfrogs, they got these nasty two, uh, I don't know, odontoids or something. Two like they look like teeth, and then they got a bunch of little cat teeth on top, and they are nasty, man. They're <laughs> you don't want to get bit by them. But yeah, I actually have three of them right now. So that's oh, uh, awesome. Yeah, I have, man, a lot of people don't know this, but I'll just plug my other YouTube channel. Um, I have another YouTube channel all about frogs and turtles. Did you know that, Justin? I think, yeah, I haven't okay. checked it out, but I, yeah, I yeah. heard from somebody. I My whole goal with this one is to try and beat that that channel because that channel, I have a video that got uh, 48 million views. And I oh, don't, really? <laughs> I'm like, I put in so much work into this and I don't do anything with that. And everyone watches that stuff. But. But anyways, getting back to the philosophy that everyone's here for, the 48 million people who are going to watch this one. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're going to be talking about your paper, Criteria of Identity Without Sortals. Um, just real quick, though, I, w- I was interested in, in finding out how did you get into philosophy at all? How did you want to become uh, a professional philosopher? Yeah, uh, it was sort of a weird, circuitous path because it definitely wasn't my original plan. In fact, my undergraduate degree was basically in kids' book illustration. So what? That's it was cool. definitely a shift. But like, you know, I started to become interested um, late high school and college. I started to become interested in um, uh, questions in like apologetics and theology that mm-hmm. were relevant to my religious beliefs. And so, I, you know, I became interested in reading all about that and that interest just kind of grew and grew. And eventually I sort of outgrew the popular level apologetics type stuff and became exposed to, you know, more academic work. And anyway, so I just kind of, you know, that just sort of blossomed and I ended up, um, you know, switching tracks from art to philosophy. Yeah. Wow. Do you still mess with art at all yourself? Not very much. Um, Uh, it's, it's something that I just strangely perhaps kind of grew tired of after hmm. a while. Yeah. That's um, sad. Cause I was, I was really hoping for a kid's book on, uh, Sordles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really nice. Yeah. Some people have tried to get me to do like, uh, an illustrated philosophy for kids kind yeah. of, book. but there's already some stuff like that out there. So, okay. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay. Yeah. So um, you ended up doing a, a master's in philosophy of religion at TEDS. Is that right? Yeah. So that was like my transition from art to philosophy. I did it by way of that TEDS degree because they were willing to take me even though I had almost no official uh, philosophy background at that point. And it was also like my first interest in philosophy. Initially, what I was most interested in was philosophy of religion. And that Mm -hmm. was what that program focused on. Yeah. Yeah, it's perfect. And we had, uh, you know, a mutual mentor there in, uh, in, um, wow, uh, Harold Netlin. Holy cow. I almost forgot Dr. Netlin's name. Um, yeah, I love that guy so much. So yeah, you got in, too. you got into, uh, yeah, he's just the man, dude. I, not enough people talk about him, but I love that guy. I know he is so wonderful. I definitely made it a point to keep up correspondence with him since, yeah. since leaving tests because he is just a wonderful person and yeah, he's great. Yeah. <laughs> Really is so. So you you got in on philosophy of religion. What'd you end up doing your PhD on then? Yeah, so it's it's in philosophy, but I specialized. Um, I mean, so I list as my areas of specialization: philosophy of religion and metaphysics. Okay. But my dissertation was on a topic in metaphysics. It was about this this sort of thing that we're going. Oh, talk. sweet dude! This we're right in your wheelhouse. Then I love that. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. Well, okay. So we've used the word a few times here. Um, what is a sortle? Yeah. Um, the short answer is nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> but here's a more helpful and also maybe not too long of an answer. So when you think about like all the different objects there are in the world, they come in different sorts, right? There are lots of different sorts of things. There are hippos and books and trees and cars, right? So sortles correspond to the different sorts of things. Mm. Now, some philosophers like to talk about um, sortal terms, and so these would be terms like like the word hippo, yeah. right, or the word tree or whatever, right? And some philosophers like to talk about sortal uh, concepts, so mm. like the concept of a hippo or the concept of a car. Um, and especially like if you look in like the 70s and 80s, a lot of the literature on sortals and things where sortals were relevant was in terms of concepts and sort of the concepts and sort of terms. Right around uh, that conceptual turn in, in language and philosophy type stuff too. Right. And so, I mean, nowadays, I, well, actually, um, I, I'll just say the way I like to think about it is I prefer to think in terms of sortal properties sure, because I'm interested in the world and not as much our like, you know, linguistic descriptions of the world or our, the way that we conceptualize it. I mean, all of that is interesting as well, but where yeah. I'm focused on is the world itself. Yeah. What's actually out there, the properties that objects have and so forth. So I like to focus on sort of properties and these would be properties like being a hippo, being a tree, being a book. Etc. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Do are, <clears throat> I imagine there's probably still like, like the anti-realists would not want to use properties, right? Do, do, is that is that uh, is that still a beef in in metaphysics that some people are saying? Look, I don't talk about sort of properties. Let's talk about sort oh, of concepts. Sure, yeah, yeah. Okay. So some people are anti-realist about properties, and so yeah, yes, right. they would presumably not want to talk about sort of properties. Um, okay. Yeah, that's okay. that's definitely um, uh, a a, re- a position that's out there. Um, okay. And I I think that most of what I say in my dissertation and in this paper that we're talking about 
could be like translated into you know nominalist friendly oh, okay. language. Um, yeah. I th- I haven't actually tried that, but I let think, them do that. Those yeah, nominalists, yeah. 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 You want to try to get rid of properties, you do the work. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I don't think that anything I say like really seriously depends on there being properties. It's just that I think there are properties and it's easier to say a lot of it, it you know, if you just speak as though there are. And so that's what I do. Okay. Yeah, that, that helps. Um, so, yeah, so we have... Um... We have different terms, different concepts, but we're going to prefer properties. When I checked the uh, SCP entry on this, they said um, there's at least three three things that people are doing with sortals. Uh, sortals tell us about the essence of a thing. So sortals can tell us uh, how to count things, and then sortals um, tells tell us uh, how when something continues to exist or when it like stops existing. Uh, mm-hmm. Does does that sound right? Would you agree with that? That's one way of carving it up. Yeah. Also, there's a paper by Fred Feldman from uh, the 70s where he lays out three different uh, approaches to trying to characterize what exactly is a sortal mm-hmm. and argues that none of them are equivalent. And this yeah. is why I said initially, the short answer is nobody knows what a sort is. Yeah. And that's because there are all these different ways of characterizing sortals and arguably they're not the same. They're not equivalent to each other. Hmm. So yeah, some of the ways of characterizing them are like the ones that you just listed. The counting one is pretty common. And the idea there is like, well, a sortal is something by which you can count objects. So like I can count hippos. I yeah. can't count greenness. So uh, being a hippo is a sortal property, whereas being green is not a sortal property. That's the um, idea behind the counting approach, roughly. Oh, okay. So what if what if someone said like I can count uh, green things? Yeah, okay. exactly. Oh, so this is, this is um this is one of the problems that I think the counting approach has. Uh, okay. So EJ Low, uh, is it Low? Yeah, I think so. E.J. Lowe um, argues in in his book on sortal kinds and so forth. He's like, look, um, you can't count green things. I think he actually uses red things. But anyway, you can't <laughs> count green things because like there's just no definite answer to like how many green things there are. Um, and his his it, the problem, if I remember, it has something to do with like it's either like, well, how do we carve up and individuate green things like what counts as a green thing or it might have something to do with like infinities or something like that i don't remember exactly but i think that feldman has a response to this um because feldman says i mean surely it could be the case that there are zero green things you know in my attic or something like that right um and so at least some cases you can count green things but we don't think normally that green thing is a sort um Or similarly, he says, you know, there could be at least six green things in my attic, right? Like maybe not, maybe there's, there's a problem about there being exactly six green things, but there could be at least six green things. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's one approach and it does have some problems. Okay. Another problem um, with that approach, uh, my friend uh, Cruz raised, this was his first thought. As soon as I told him this, he was like, well, what about is, um, what about mass sortals? So hmm. there are sortals that correspond to individual objects like hippos and trees, but then there are also like mass term sortals like gold and water and 
uh, you know, dirt and, you know, whatever, right? Matter, metal. And we don't normally think that those things are countable. That's why we distinguish between mass nouns and count nouns. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Between mass nouns and count nouns. So, like, what if you had the whole lineup of, uh, in my safe, I've got... I don't want to say this because then someone will come and rob me and think I have this. In someone else's safe, there's a bunch of gold. There's gold jewelry and gold rings, maybe gold bars. Uh, they're not all jewelry, but they're all gold. Couldn't you ask, like, uh, how many gold things are there? Yeah, you could. But gold things and gold are not the uh, same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, or yeah. At least arguably, right? Like, yeah. you might think, well, gold things are made of gold. Yeah, but then the gold that they're made of is different than the gold things that they make. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay, uh, I think we're gonna have some fun with that too later. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is good. Okay, so um, I mean, maybe maybe I should say this. So yeah. yeah, there are all these different approaches to like trying to characterize sortals, and they tend to have problems, and they're not all the same. Here's the approach that I like, and it is kind of vague. And its vagueness sort of protects it from counterexamples. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I liked when that's, you can bake that in. Yeah. But uh, so one approach that some people take is like, look, there's an intuitive distinction between telling me what something is and merely telling me what something is like. So if I tell you that this thing is a hippo, I've told you what it is. If I tell you that it's brown or that it's a brown thing, I mean, I guess you would call that brown. I, I think I'd call it brown. Um, you might say, well, you haven't really told me what it is. You've just told me something about what it's like. Yeah. So that's like an intuitive distinction, which I don't know how to analyze. But okay. some people say that's the difference between sortals and non-sortals. It's, you know, does it tell you what it is or just what it's like? And the sortals yeah. are the ones that tell you what it is. That's the approach I like. So um, does that, when it when you say it tells you what it is, is that picking out its essence or... So some people think so. That is, so some people want to say, yeah, when you tell me what something is, what you're doing is telling me like what it's Aristotelian kind essence is, or you're telling me what it's like natural kind property is or something like that. Um, And then sometimes they will allow uh, uh, like, in addition to that, like uh, what are called restrictions of kind properties or, or kind essences. So that something like being a child, which is not an essence, okay. um, uh, you would treat it as, oh, well, it's a restriction of an essence. It's like being a human plus, you know, being, uh, you know, biologically immature or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Sorry, my, my puppy is, uh, he was stepping on my court. So oh, okay. I, had to, yeah. I had to grab him. Um, puppy is a good example of a phase sort of dude i was just thinking that i was and and uh and even using your distinction um your phasalism is like oh man dude i I can't wait to get in on that um well maybe we're already here with the aristotelian kinds some people go in for what you call uh do you call it substantialism is that right yeah and that's that a a sortal is picking out the the aristotelian kind and you can't lose that sort of without like losing the the thing itself is that right yeah so it doesn't necessarily i mean whether we go aristotelian or not is another oh okay (laughs) so So substantialism is my name for the view that some sort of properties are phase sort of properties and some of them are substance sort of properties so what are those yeah well 
A phase sortal property is a sortal property that an object can instantiate for a temporary phase of its existence. Okay. And so like being a puppy is a perfect example because when that puppy stops being a puppy, it's not going to stop existing. It's going to continue to exist as like a mature adult dog, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so being a puppy is a phase sort. And then a substance sortal property is a sortal property that an object can only instantiate permanently. Um, okay. And so uh, one example of this, some philosophers think that being a person is a substance sortal property. And so they're going to say that when you started to be a person, that's also when you started to exist because yeah. you can't, or you, you know, you couldn't, you know, be, be a non-person and then become a person. And then they're also going to say, when you stop being a person at that point, you will stop existing. You will go out of existence because yeah. you can't start out as a person and then become a non-person. Yeah. Person is a substance. Sort. Um, so for example, Lynn Baker hold that. For you. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. How She's no longer, lived, but um, yeah. So, uh, you know, substance sortals, most philosophers um, these days who have a view on this are what I call substantialists. They think that at least some sortal properties are substance sortal properties. Yeah. Um, at least some. So if you, if you go in for, well, let's, let me, let me just clarify. So puppy is a phase sortal because it, it's not picking up the essence of the of the dog, but but dog would be a, a substantial. Is that um, does this work? so? The essence thing is is kind of it's a related issue, but it's okay. kind of a separate issue because okay. so so there's this view called sortal essentialism mm -hmm. that says that ordinary objects all belong to certain sortal kinds essentially. Um, and so, for example, I think that Lynn Baker would probably say this, uh, she might say this somewhere about being a person. Um, the idea is that not only are you a person permanently, but you're also a person essentially. Mm. So it's not possible for you to not be a person. Yeah. All right. So there's two different views here, one of which is a little bit stronger than the other, right? Like one of you just says, you can't go from being a non-person to being a person and then back to being a non-person. If you're a person, you're permanently a person. And then there's a stronger view that says, not only are you permanently a person, you're also a person in every possible world mm. where you exist. Yes. So that view, sortal essentialism, entails substantialism, but substantialism does not entail sortal essentialism. Gotcha, gotcha. So that sortal essentialism is what I wrote down on the outline for you. Um, oh yeah, trans world sortals. Because I, oh, I was thinking about yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like this, if 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 uh, you go in for sortal essentialism, then the sortal person can you know pick out my essence, and that that will pick me out across possible worlds, such that like you don't get to a possible world and see Parker the cockroach, uh -huh. who's not 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 a person. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I think the way I would say it is that the, that sortal is um, a part of your essence, or at least it is one of your essential properties. Yeah. Um, it's not going to be uh, the whole of your essence, right? It can't exhaust your essence because um, obviously you're not the only person who has the property of being a person, right? Or you're not right. the only thing that right, has right, the property right. of being a person. So it doesn't like succeed in picking you out 
you know, from everything else that exists, yeah. even in the actual world, much less across possible worlds. But yeah. it does do what you said in that if you have being a person as an essential property, then across all possible worlds, the only pl- worlds you exist in are worlds where you are a person. Yeah. And so there's no world where we're going to find a cockroach and say, oh, that's Parker. Yeah, that's good to know. If if you go in for that, I guess do you do you go in for sortal essentialism? I know it's no, I, so I reject sortal essentialism. So since sortal essentialism entails substantialism, and I reject substantialism, I also yeah. have to reject sortal essentialism. And and someone's a substantialist if they have at least one uh, um, substantialist reading of a sortal. Yeah, if they think at least one sortal is a substance sortal. So you don't think um, there's any substance sortals. Sorry, what? So you don't go in for any substance sortals. Yeah. And I guess I should say this is a little bit rough and it depends a little bit on exactly what counts as a substance sortal. On my very, in some ways, kind of generous account where it's just any sortal property that must be instantiated permanently, there are going to be some kind of trivial exceptions. Like, for example, I think numbers are permanently and essentially numbers. And God is permanently and essentially a divine being and things like that, right? So I think there are some things that will technically count as substance sortal properties in my sense, um, mostly like necessarily existing things. Yeah. And then also like you can, again, depending on how generous we are here about what counts as a substance sortal property, you can rig up cases like, what about being a permanent hippo? where the property of being a permanent hippo is the property of being a hippo at every time at which you exist, right? Yeah. Like, okay, so technically that might <laughs> be substance sortal, at least on my way of spelling out substance sortal. Um, so, but barring those kinds of technicalities, right? Certainly okay. like ordinary sortal properties, like being a hippo or a tree or a car, right? Okay. I want to say those are, none of those are substance sortal. Interesting. Okay. So is it, is it possible for a hippo to become a person? Yeah. So in this sense, right? So right. when you, when you first say that, it can sound weird yeah. because of like a trick of language where it's like, well, but I nothing could be both a hippo and a person at the same time. You might think, um, though that's actually not entirely obvious yeah. to me. Yeah, I don't but, see why. Yeah, sure. But so even supposing that's true, my view only commits me to this. A thing which is at one time a hippo can be at another time a person. Mm-hmm. So it could like turn from a hippo into something else like a person. Yeah. Yeah. So when, it, when it, your, your paper is about identity and I I don't know what to make of your view. Like some, when I first read it, I was like, yeah, this seems good. And then when I read it again, I was like, ah, that seems nuts. And then I keep going back and forth. <laughs> so like a puppy, like my dog, uh, Theophilus is a dog, but he's in puppy phase right now. Um, I guess that that would be the phase sortal that you could uh, pick him out by, but he will cease to be a puppy, and yet um, Theophilus will still exist. I think everyone wants to admit that, um, you know, if he continues on his biological path. But the puppy Theophilus, like, no longer exists. I would want to say. But help me think through that, because I, your, your, the phasalism seems like counterintuitive at first well i don't know it's second and third yeah i should probably we should probably say what phasalism is because i think we've talked about substantialism yeah maybe we skipped over that sorry about that yeah 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 um well just to make sure that this isn't we don't get lost here yeah so my view is phasalism 
And I've borrowed that term from Dan Corman, who uses it in a similar way. He doesn't endorse the view, um, but he uses it in a similar way. And so I've just sort of appropriated the term. Um, okay. And a, my view is that, uh, you know, basically any any of these cases where an object sort of uh, changes from one sort to another are phase sortal changes, like mm -hmm. the child growing into an adult or the puppy growing into uh, an adult dog, right? Like these are all changes where the, the original object doesn't stop existing when it stops being an object of the sort that it initially was. Yeah. It just stops being an object of that sort. So here's an example from Eli Hirsch. Um, he talks about this case where a car is crushed into a block of scrap metal. Now his view is when the car is crushed into a block of scrap metal, it goes out of existence. Car yeah. is gone. My view is it doesn't stop existing at that point. It just stops being a car and starts being a block of scrap. Metal. Yeah. And I want to say the same thing about like just any other, well, roughly any other sort of change involving ordinary objects. So like, um, if you've got a clay statue and you squash it into a lump, I say statue doesn't stop existing when you squash it. It just stops being a statue, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, so it's it's just like the object still exists, right? But but yeah. the, the, it no longer... So this is what's tough here. So the statue has certain properties, and when you smash it, it's no longer instantiating those properties, right? It's no longer instantiating the property being a statue, yeah, and having a nose and resembling Adam right. Yeah, so it's going to lose a lot of properties. It's going to retain some as well. Like it's going to retain the property being made of clay. For example. okay, that's good. That's good. Yeah. So there's this object there that's been there when it was a statue. That's there when it's a clay. When it's clay again, but doesn't when it seem? Yeah, like it, a, it, yeah. But isn't the statue like gone? Isn't it like not there? Um. Yeah. So it depends on what you mean. Yeah. Uh, there was a statue, mm -hmm. and in a certain sense, the statue is gone because it, it's no longer the case that there is a statue. Mm -hmm. But we still have a thing, on my view, that is, we right. still have a thing which was that statue, right? Like, so. Oh, thing, okay. Yeah. The yeah. lump. The lump is the thing that was the statue. Yeah. The lump. I mean, that's so it's obvious, but it, when we're thinking about it at this high level, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know, even more succinctly, the lump was a statue. Yes. And it was that statue. Yeah. And it is no longer that statue because it's no longer a statue at all. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's, but you'd say it's still the same, it's still the same object? Yeah, the same object. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. And I understand same object to be like classical numerical identity. Yeah. Um, I'm not trying to do anything weird with, with that. <laughs> okay. Okay. And so when, when Theophilus, my puppy, uh, when he becomes an adult puppy, uh, I don't know, somewhere around like well, a year and a half or something, let's say he's like for sure an adult then, um, Theophilus, he, he is the same object that used to be the puppy, but is now an adult Bernadoodle. Yep. That's right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I mean, yeah, that's when I, when I read through, I got to this point again, but then I thought, well, there's all these people who disagree. And most of most of the metaphysicians studying sort of you say are uh, going for this term substantialism that that you coined, I think. So what would a substantialist say to that? Why, why would they not uh, go in for this uh, phasalism here? Yeah. OK, so um, there are a couple of things, I think, um, that are that motivate substantialism. 
one that I hear uh, from some people is that it's just this idea, this intuition mm. that in some of these cases of sortal changes, an object is created or destroyed. Yeah. And um, I think that intuition is stronger in some cases than others. I do have that intuition to some extent, like in the case of the statue and the clay, you know, it's definitely sounds right to say, oh, when the artist molds the lump into a statue, the artist has made a statue. Um, or, or, or more particularly, you could, you know, give the statue a name, uh, you know, call it Bob. And you say the artist has made Bob. Yeah. Um, and so that makes it sound like, okay, a new object has come into existence here. Um, and then you might think similarly when you squash it, you might think, oh, it seems like, you know, it's not just that something stopped being a statue. It's that something stopped existing, you mm. might think. So mm. if you have those kinds of intuitions, I think that that tends to motivate um, substantialism. And then another thing that uh, seems to motivate substantialism is this idea that sortals have an important role to play in criteria of identity for yeah. objects. And that's what the paper was about, right? Yeah. So um, it's definitely very traditional to suppose that substance sortals are involved in criteria of identity for ordinary objects. And Eli Hirsch has actually argued that you need substance sortals in criteria of identity in order to, for those criteria to handle even very mundane cases of persistence. Um, so what I'm up to in that paper is, is based a defensive move, trying to say, we actually don't need substance sortals in order to get good criteria of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I, I mean, one thing I don't do in that paper is I don't actually try to argue that phasalism is true in that paper. Right. I've, I've got another paper in progress that- Oh, that sweet. Is, relevant to that but in this one i'm mostly just trying to say this defensive thing like look you know the substantialist doesn't have any advantages here when it comes yeah. to criteria of identity yeah yeah i caught that i, I like that I, I didn't know that about this other paper coming forth which is a little spicier i like that um <laughs> well do you do you distinguish is this just uh in the realm of like objects would you distinguish between like objects and subjects and like um you know for us we're as a subject maybe we because the substance dualist, of which I uh, count myself, though it's, uh, I'm still in progress. I'm still learning and stuff. So I'm even like embarrassed to call myself anything. But substance dualists say, well, you know, like if you have the substantial soul, uh, and they just differ on what that is, whether it's a substance or not or whatever. But that's how we can count identity over time. And I would think that would be like a, a substance sort of, uh, of sorts, uh, the soul. Do you, oh. w- w- yeah, you see what I'm getting at there? Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, it's I just for I material say, objects. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that I say in my dissertation that I'm limiting the scope of my discussion to material objects. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. Yeah. And and I'm, so mostly I just kind of stay neutral about like, um, th- so Trenton Merricks actually has argued that it's possible for an immaterial object to become a material object and vice versa. Hmm. Um, so if that's the case, then it seems like, you know, this phasalist view could easily be extended to um, uh, even immaterial substances, but I'm not committed to that. I don't know whether he's right about that or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah. Phasalism, man, this is wild stuff. This is so good. I'm like, 
I keep seeing it and I'm like, yeah, I think he's right. And then I like lose it. Um, well, maybe I should tell you um, part why I think it's true. Yeah, please. If that would be interesting. Yeah. So, so my approach to metaphysics, I'm one of those people who really likes what's sometimes called common sense metaphysics or okay. folk metaphysics. And so the idea is that there are a whole bunch of metaphysical beliefs and inclinations that ordinary people have about the world and its metaphysical structure before they start doing any fancy philosophy. They just yeah. kind of automatically, you know, adopt certain views or are inclined towards certain views about the metaphysics in the world. Um, and I'm one of those people who thinks that, you know, those folk metaphysical beliefs and inclinations uh, that, you know, we have them for reasons and those reasons are often good reasons. Mm. And so when I do metaphysics, my method involves respecting folk metaphysics to a high degree. I try to retain as much of it as I can. I yeah. treat the components of folk metaphysics as enjoying like a substantial degree of, of protonto justification so that you yeah. don't, you can't throw them out lightly. You have to have really good reasons. Okay. Um, and so I want my metaphysical picture of the world to match up with the folk metaphysical picture as much as I can get away with reasonably. Yeah. And so basalism, I actually think is um, a better fit with folk metaphysics than substantialism is. Mm. And that's one of the big reasons why I like basalism. And the way to see this, or at least the best way to see it is any case where you have a candidate substance sortal change, like the statue and the clay, yeah. you're also going to have a material coincidence puzzle. All right. So here's like the, the famous puzzle about the statue and the clay. Um, while the statue exists, it's in the same, exactly the same place as the, the piece of clay it's made of at exactly the same time. Yeah. And normally we think, oh, well, I mean, you know, until until you start doing philosophy <laughs> and then mm. people start telling you otherwise, normally we think, oh, yeah, you can't have two objects in the same place at the same time. Right. Uh, and so that seems like a pretty good reason to think that the statue just is the piece of clay. Right. Yeah. Uh, but what happens if you squash the statue? Well, like we were saying a minute ago, you know, it's it's a lot of people have the intuition like, oh, the statue has stopped existing, but the piece of clay is still there. And so now it starts to look like, oh, there are differences between the statue and the piece of clay. You know, one of them is still around. The other isn't. Yeah. Um, but there can't be differences between them if they're just the same thing. Uh, and so now we've got a puzzle. Are they the same thing or are they two different things? And one solution to this puzzle is phasalism. And it's just to say, look, um, being a statue is just a phase that the piece of clay goes through temporarily. And so what happens when you squash it is nothing goes out of existence. It's just the piece of clay stops being a statue. Yeah. Now, there are other solutions to the puzzle. But I think the phasalist solution fits the best with folk metaphysics. And one of the reasons, I mean, I, I won't go into all the details, but sure. one of the key uh, ideas here is this. A lot of the substantialist approaches to this puzzle introduce exotic metaphysics of yeah. some sort or another. They'll either end up saying that actually you can have objects in the same place at the same time and that that's like ubiquitous, like that's happening all over the place. Yeah. Um, and so there are actually a lot more objects in my immediate surroundings than I would normally think and so on. 
or they'll end up saying like, uh, I mean, another view is like the temporal parts view, yep. um, which introduces the idea of temporal parts and says that, you know, persisting objects are spread out in time in something like the way that they're spread out in space. You know, they have different parts at different times. Space time worms. Yeah. 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 And so it turns out that like, you know, normally you would have thought that the thing filling this person shaped region right here in my chair, normally you would have thought that was the whole of me. Um, but on the temporal parts view, it turns out to be a very small part of me, right. um, which I think is, is pretty wild. Um, yeah. And I mean, so, you know, these are cool ideas. And I think it's good that there are people developing them and defending them. But it seems to me like, you know, the core idea of each of these is pretty not folk metaphysics-y. It's like, okay, let's, let's introduce something kind of exotic. Whereas yeah. the core idea of the phasalist approach is the notion of a phase sort of change, which is present in folk metaphysics, because pretty much everybody thinks that like child to adult is a phase sort of change, right? Or that puppy to adult dog. And so we're not bringing in exotic metaphysics to solve the problem. We're bringing in something that's already present in folk metaphysics. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. So in the clay, uh, <clears throat> in the clay analogy, um, the clay is going through different phases and so you can pick out a phase sort of, um, to say statue or, or just lump when it comes to child and adult, what do you, what, what are we picking out? What's the, uh, higher, what's the clay in that analogy or in that, uh, example? Oh, um, a human being, I would say. Human. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're, That's you're cool. asking if I understand right. Well, what is the more general sort of, yeah. That is instantiated by the object that changes from being this kind to this kind. Like what's right. the sort of that keeps throughout the entire process? Which and, which would be the object, right? Isn't that the... Yeah, so I, I was going to say like in, in the case of the child, you can say human being, but I actually don't think that there has to be a sort of that is retained throughout an object's entire life. Um, unless it's just like object, if you count that as a sort of. Whoa. So, wow. Um, what about, so that, that brings up identity, right? Like if it doesn't retain any sortals from, you know, point, uh, from T1 to TN, which is like the end of its existence. What? Like, how is it the same thing? Yeah. So let's hear, let's work with an example. Um, okay. So let's go to the statue again and let's say the statue is squashed and now we've got just a piece of clay. And now let's suppose we take a tiny bit of that piece of clay and remove it, throw it out and replace it with a bit of wax. Yes. And we do the same thing the next day and the next day. And then eventually after a long time, we have a lump of wax instead of a lump of clay. Mm -hmm. I want to say that's the same object. It is now wow. turned from a piece of clay to a piece of wax. Right. And so now your question is like, what is it? Is your question, well, what is it in virtue of which this is the same object? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's is a, a causal things. history or yeah. Uh, well, not, the, not on my view. I mean, maybe one could say that, but okay. there's a few things to say here. So, um, uh, I'm trying to figure out what the best place to start is, but I guess, all right. So one thing to say is I think there is something in common, like all the way across that series. It's just not a sort of, um, I endorse this view on uh, which objects are what David Armstrong calls thin particulars. Yeah, okay. Sure. Okay, so I think that objects are not just bundles of properties. They're the things that have 
properties. And so those are Armstrong's thin particulars. And so I think that what's going on here is there's a thin particular, which is initially a statue, and then it's just a piece of clay, and then later it's a piece of wax. So there is at least that thing, which is in common throughout the entire process, right? Okay. Now, there's a question here. It's like, well, but what are the criteria of identity for thin particulars? And that's the question that this this newspaper answers, where I give my phasalist criterion of identity. I say, okay, you want a criterion of identity for phasalism? Here it is. It's the change minimizing criteria. Mm. And the rough idea of that criterion, it's very similar to um, uh, Robert Nozick's closest continuer theory, but it's actually a little bit more indebted to um, uh, Eli Hirsch talks about a change minimizing criterion. He doesn't endorse it, but he talks about it in in some of his work. Um, And the rough idea of the change minimizing criterion is this. Um, So following certain other authors, I I like to think about uh, identity over time for objects as being um, like a matter of like, okay, there are a bunch of these different momentary states of objects that come in sequences or series. Um, so like my life is made up of a bunch of like momentary states of a human being in a big long series. Uh, yeah. Justin, is there, is there a, is there a, is there a principled way to like uh, slice up those, those time slice series? Like, uh, or do they depend on, you know, maybe now you have this certain haircut and so it's that one's longer. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Oh, or are yes. they all? They're all. Um, they're all uh, temporally point-sized. Okay. So oh, okay. Okay. They're all like just instantaneous. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Um, they all have zero uh, uh, temporal duration. Okay. Uh, at least on the way that I'm thinking about them. Yeah. Sure. I like to call them ordinary object states. Other people use different terms. Um, but yeah, the idea is like you can think of these as. I mean, on my way of thinking about them, they're states of affairs. Okay. Um, not like temporal parts or stages, because I'm not a, a four-dimensionalist, but they're states of affairs, like the the state of the object at that time, right? And and is that a is that a um is that a concrete thing or an abstract thing? Or maybe so both. It'll be a concrete thing because okay. it'll be a state of affairs involving a concrete object instantiating certain properties. Gotcha. Um I, I think those are normally taken to be concrete. It's not like uh well, okay. Um there's actually in the literature two different notions of states of affairs. There's yeah, that's why I ask. Yeah, because yeah, I, I like got deep in facts. Yeah, so the, so some people talk about abstract states of affairs mm-hmm. that either obtain or don't obtain. And when they obtain, they're facts, right? Yeah, that's what, yeah. That at least that's or one way. way. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm I yeah. So sorry, I I'm thinking of the concrete thing. So if gotcha. you like if you like talk of abstract states of affairs obtaining or not obtaining. I'm talking about like the obtaining of gotcha. of abstract states. Okay. Um, yeah. And so you get like these long sequences of them that make up the careers of objects in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, what a criterion of identity does is it tells you which sequences of ordinary object states are such that all of those states are states of the same object. Yeah. Okay. And so the criterion I defend is roughly... Roughly what it says is the only the change minimizing sequences of states are uh, such that all of their states are states of the same object. And so Mm -hmm. the idea is like if you follow a series of states up to a certain point and you ask, 
okay, where does it go next? Um, a change minimizing series is one that says the, the next state in the series is whichever state at the next moment is most similar to the immediately preceding state. Yeah. Um, so that's the rough idea. Uh, here's an illustration. Here, let me try to illustrate this, get a little bit more concrete here. So yeah. here's a case that Hirsch talks about in his book. Suppose you've got um, a tree and now consider like that tree's career is made up of a series of tree states. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the trunk of that tree, its career is made up of a series of trunk states, right? But there's also a series of states that goes like this. It starts with states of the tree. And then at some point, it just arbitrarily shifts to states of the trunk, right? Yeah. That's a, a possible series of state. Well, it's an actual series of states. Um, and there are infinitely many series like that because, you know, you could jump from tree to trunk at any point. Yeah. Um, but that one shifts from states of one object to states of another because the trunk is not the same object as the tree. It's like a part of the tree instead. Yeah. Right? Um, and so my one, one thing you want from a criterion of identity is for it to tell you why or, or to give you conditions which say that, oh, that's not a series of states where they're all states of the same object. Right. And, and hopefully it's not arbitrary too. Yeah. 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 So you want the criterion to give you the verdict that, oops, you've just switched from one object to another there. Yeah. And so the way that my criterion does this, or my version of the criterion Hirsch originally introduced, is that it says, well, that series isn't change minimizing because the shift from tree states to trunk states involves a bigger change than just staying with tree states. Yeah. Um, and so, and this is actually that much Hirsch talks about. Um, one thing I do is do and not just something Hirsch has said is um, I end up saying that when we're talking about which states are more similar to each other, which determines which sequences are change minimizing, I end up giving sortal properties um, a lot of weight as like, so that again, very roughly, uh, states of objects of the same sort uh, count as being more alike than states of objects of a different sort. Yeah. And so that helps to ensure, although in this case, I think it's not really necessary, but it helps to ensure that the shift from tree states to trunk states is definitely not a change minimizing shift because now um, we've shifted between one sort and another. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. So when, when you're looking at a series and you have this change minimizing uh, criterion, what if the next, um, um, what if the next state is like radically different, but it's still the least, it still fits the change minimizing criteria because the others yeah. are so much more extreme. Yeah. So then it's going to have the verdict that the object survives provided okay. that there's enough continuity there. So I do have a continuity constraint as well in yeah. the criterion and I leave it in the paper really open-ended like, cause there are a lot of different kinds of continuity that some people have thought oh, are for identity over time and for the purposes of that paper i didn't need to take a position on like which kinds are important so i left it open-ended but yeah i do think that there are some continuity constraints on persistence and so as long as it also doesn't violate gotcha. continuity constraints then it's going to on my view be the same object and so that's why this turns out to be a phaseless criterion because like so take the case of the car crushed into a block of scrap metal um, at that point, when it gets crushed, we run out of car states. 
that mm -hmm. are continuous with the or, you know initial states in the series. But we still have hunk of scrap metal states, and they're going to be more like the final car states in the series than any other states at that time. Mm -hmm. So that's going to count as a change minimizing series from car states to a uh, hunk of scrap metal states. Yeah. And so by my criterion, it's going to turn out that this object that started out as a car survives as a hunk of scrap. Metal. So we get a phaseless conclusion. Yeah. Can So we got that hum hunk of scrap metal and we start replacing its parts again. Uh, it's enough to satisfy uh, the change minimizing criterion. And um, I just forgot the other name. Uh, what's the other criteria? criteria? Uh, you mean like the one in the paper that I talked about? Yeah, you just mentioned it. Um, uh, the sortal criterion? No. Oh, shoot, man. I wish I could rewind right now. Um, uh, con continuity? Oh, the condition, the other condition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Condition, sorry. Yeah, Con continuity condition. So we're we're satisfying these, um, but like further down the series, however long it takes uh, to 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 satisfy the criteria, we get a butterfly at the end. Yeah. Is yeah, that yeah. possible? Is that possible to turn that car to then crush it to then turn it into a, a butterfly and it be the same object? Yeah. So if you imagine, like, okay, so we crush the car and then suppose like you know, the, the, the hunk of scrap metal starts to shrink and it gets smaller and smaller and then it starts to undergo chemical changes and then it starts to change shape and eventually you get a butterfly. Yeah. Yeah. So my view is going to end up saying that the butterfly at the end is classically identical to the car at the beginning. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Now um, maybe yeah. I should say, because I mean, a lot of people have intuitions against this sort of thing and they think look that's just too much change the <laughs> gone. Right, so right. maybe i should say something about how i deal with that yeah um, please so i appreciate that there are these intuitions but i want to give them a different explanation i want to say that when we have the intuition that the object has stopped existing in the course of a sortal change it's not that the object has been literally destroyed like it's literally stopped existing it's that there's been um a break in in certain counterpart relations. So hmm. once you've got these ordinary object states that I talk about, yeah. you can also have counterpart relations between those states. And those are going to be like similarity relations is the way people normally think about counterpart relations. And so then what I want to say is, um, uh, and this is based on an, a similar idea from Ned Marcosian, but what I want to say is in order for something to be the same uh, phi, where you can put any sortal in for phi, yeah. over a, a period of time or a course of change. It has to stand in the phi counterpart, or the, its states at the earlier time have to be phi counterparts of its later states, right? So car start with a car. We crush the car into a block of scrap metal. The block of scrap metal states are not car counterparts of the car states because they're not even car states. Yeah. So that block of scrap metal is not going to be the same car as what we started with on my account, even though it is the same object. Yeah. Because the object counterpart relation for me is just the classical identity relation, right? Yeah. And suppose we keep going and we end up with the butterfly. Okay, yeah. well, the butterfly is not gonna be the same car. It's not gonna be the same hunk of metal. It's not gonna be the same butterfly because obviously there aren't even, you know, the butterfly is not, those are butterfly states. They're not car states. They're not yeah. hunk of metal states, right? Yeah. But also something else has happened, I think. And that is 
All right, so the whole time we've had like a hunk of matter here that was first car-shaped and then hunk of metal-shaped, and now it's butterfly-shaped. Um, I want to say that that hunk of matter has changed so much. Uh, you know, it's so much smaller now and so on, a totally different shape. Um, it's not the same hunk of matter that it was. So even though we have hunk of matter states all the way through the process, those at the end are not a uh, hunk of matter counterparts of yeah it's at the beginning and that kind of thing it, my hope is that that kind of thing can account for our intuition that like oh you know the original object is gone it's like well kind of there's been a break in sameness of a certain sort yeah. but not of classical identity okay okay yeah that that is helpful um yeah i wonder this is totally periphery, uh, peripheral. Um, but like when, like the car states and the hunk of metal states are not uh, identical. Obviously, we all know this. But like, if someone smashed up, if someone jacked my car and smashed it up in one of those, you know, compressors and turned it into a square hunk of metal, yeah. Um, I think I would still own that uh, property. It would still be mine. A hunk of metal. Yeah. 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 Because it was my car. Um. But then at some point along the series, and maybe this is like a problem of vagueness or something, but like when it becomes a butterfly, it doesn't seem like I own the butterfly. And this is like law. Now we're getting into ownership and, and who knows, right? But any any yeah. any like intuitive thoughts uh, on that? Yeah, or here's here's a, a more excursion case. Suppose it turns into a child. Oh, yeah, um, that's good. Or, or even just that, actually even better, um, uh, an adult human being. Right. Yeah. You would not want to say, oh, I own this human being. Right. Like right. now slavery is suddenly OK. And what, right. Because you know, he was in the same series. Right. Yeah. So here's what I want to say about this. Um, there are moral properties that, you know, become relevant to sort of changes. But what I want to hmm. say is they don't track or at least they don't necessarily track classical identity. They instead track um, the sorts. So that like hmm. if there are certain moral properties that attach to being a person, for example, then yeah, as soon sure. as a thing becomes a person, it now has a new moral standing than it did than it had be didn't have before. Yeah, um, it tracks the sortals. That's good. Okay. And and like you said, it the whole series doesn't have to have any uh sortals in common from the beginning to the end. Yeah, and at least on my yeah extreme view, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Man, this is so good. Well um Justin, what what Oh no. Um I'm I'm I like the thin particulars take on on that view if you're applying that to to human beings um like what are we? What's the thin particular that Oh. Yeah. So, um I waver between two different views on what human beings are. Um mm -hmm. some days I like substance dualism okay. and some days I like animalism. Okay. Um so just to make sure that the audience is tracking. Um, I don't know who all is watching, right? So substance dualism we mentioned earlier is the view that a human person um, is either an immaterial soul with like a body that's associated with it, or they're like composed of an immaterial soul and a body. So the soul is like a part of them instead of being identical to them. Mm -hmm. And the body is the other part, right? And then animalism is the view that a human person is identical to 
the human animal that, you know, if we, you know, we think of ourselves as like advanced animals, right? Like there is some kind of animal sitting in my chair right now, some yeah. organism. Uh, the animalist says, that's you. You're that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I have toyed with the possibility of combining these two views, mm-hmm. um, but I haven't really thought about this in a lot of detail, but I've sometimes thought, well, look, you know, the kind of substance dualism that seems most attractive to me, the emergent substance dualism that people like William Hasker defend. Sure. Yeah. And you might think like, look, why couldn't, uh, you know, like a, a conscious field or, you know, however it is he thinks of the soul that emerges yeah. from an organic system just be considered part of that organic system. It's not a material part, but right. why couldn't it be part of it? And then in that case, why wouldn't it just be part of the organism? And so then you could say both that the human person, you know, you could be a substance dualist and also an animalist. The human yeah. person is both the composite of soul and body and it's an organism. Yeah. Uh, so that's a view that I've like toyed with a little bit. And in some point in the future, I want to think more about that. That's awesome. I've I've been thinking about that a lot as well in the exact same way. So that's that's pretty cool. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. It's so good. Uh, you would ask about uh, what was thin, it? Uh, thin thin particularism. So like, yeah. Oh, on that view, it wouldn't. It would be like the the you are the soul on the thin particular. I only know thin and thick through like a hylomorphist uh, reading. So like on the hylomorphist reading, like a thick particular is the oh, you I know see. form and matter, but on a thin particular, it's just the form. Uh, right. So the, yeah. So I should say um, that I'm not super familiar with the hylomorphist uh, literature. And so sure. I don't want to try to to tackle that just because yeah. I will probably no just say things that are false. But, but like um, thinking about it non-hylomorphically, um, so it seems to me if you're a thin particularist and you're also an animalist, then what you're going to be saying is this. The animal that you are identical to uh, is a thin particular, a thin particular that instantiates properties like being an animal and being a person and so on, right? Yeah. Um, and so you're both identical to an animal and identical to a thin particular because the thin particular is the thing that is you and it also instantiates being an animal. Um, okay. And then on the substance dualist view, uh, Let's let's say let's take the version of substance dualism that says you are identical to a soul. Yeah. Not that you have a soul as a part, but you you just are. That's good. That's a good one. Take that view. I think that the thin particularist is going to end up saying this, that um, you are, again, identical to a thin particular. But one of the properties that that thin particular, you know, has is the property of being a soul. Yeah. Um, so the thin particular is the soul yeah, and it's you and, and you're the soul, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's so good. That's, that's how it would go for that version of substance dualism. Okay. That's awesome, man. That was, this is, this was super good. Um, well, one, I wanted to finish up, uh, because you talked about this in the paper, um, mm-hmm. and because it's, the uh, the, uh, the background is vision from, uh, uh, WandaVision. And, uh, for those who have seen it, um, there's two visions at the end and they're kind of arguing with each other and to sound really smart, they, they say, uh, you know, you know about, uh, the ship of Theseus from identity metaphysics. <laughs> and I asked all my, my philosopher friends are like, yeah, we don't call it that. That's weird, but it sounds kind of smart. Um, so we could go either with vision or we could go with the, the ship. 
Um, can you help us think through the ship of Theseus or, or the ship of Visionus uh, on a Phaselist account? So I actually still have not watched WandaVision, but I've heard oh, about it. I just spoiled it for you. Oh, no, don't worry about it. I mean, <laughs> I've, right, heard, cool. I've heard a little bit about the ship of Theseus in it. Um, okay. Yeah, so here's here's the puzzle of the ship of Theseus, and I'm going to give you Hobbes's version because yeah. that's the cool version. Um, okay. But so, All right, so we've got a ship. And it's called the ship of Theseus and it's made of wood. And then, uh, you know, somebody decides, hey, one of these boards is getting kind of old. Let's replace it with a newer one. So they take a board off the ship of Theseus and then they replace it with a new one. Um, and then uh, they do that again and again. And over a long period of time, eventually all of the original boards are replaced by new boards. And so now we've got the original ship. And this whole process of replacement that has led us to a ship made of new boards. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's tempting to say that the ship made of new boards is the original ship, because at any rate, a lot of people have the intuition that a ship can persist through gradual turnover of all of its parts. Um, Okay. But now suppose that all the old boards that have been replaced, they're all laying around somewhere. And somebody comes along and takes those old boards and puts them back together in exactly the way that they were when they originally composed that that ship that we started with. Mm -hmm. Here again, it's tempting to say that this ship, which is made of the reassembled old boards, is the original ship. Because, again, a lot of people have the intuition that, like, you can take a ship apart and put those boards back together again and get the same ship again. Mm -hmm. You can reassemble the same one. Okay, so now we've got a puzzle because we have two ships, the one made of the new boards and the one made of the reassembled old boards, each of which seems like it should be the same ship as the original one. But they also seem like two different ships uh, because they're in two different places at once and they're made of different boards, right? They, they seem like different ships. And it, it and so it's like, well, how can two ships be one ship? How does that, you know, how can two things be one thing? So it, it, we've got a puzzle here and it's a vision puzzle. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> but anyway. Um, okay. So how do we solve this puzzle? Well, there are a ton of different solutions that have been suggested uh, and the reason, I mean, the reason this comes in my paper is actually because I'm uh, illustrating a certain point about the criterion that I defend. Um, it's meant to, like, illustrate a certain objection to that criterion that I talk about. But forget about all of that. And let's just think about <laughs> what we do about this puzzle, right? Because yeah. people yeah, yeah. can read the paper if they want to. Yep. Um, they're probably more interested in, like, how do we solve the puzzle of the ship of Theseus, right? Right. I mean, the solution that I go for is one that says that the the um, reassemble or sorry that the uh, the ship made of new planks, you know, uh, after that gradual replacement process is the original, hmm. and the ship made of reassembled planks is not the original, and that's because um, given certain other views that I hold, my change minimizing criterion ends up having that consequence that the the ship made of the new planks is the original. The ship made of the reassembly planks is not. Hmm. Um, however, it also has the consequence that if you don't replace the original planks, if you just take the original ship apart and then put the planks back together, 
then you do get the original ship again. The reassembly mm. is the original. So whether you get the original ship when you put the old planks back together yeah. depends on whether you, uh, there's that other one out there that you, you know, where you gradually replaced the planks. Um, yeah. Some people think this is really counterintuitive. I think it's only counterintuitive if you think that there are, there is like a, a metaphysical, like grounding type explanation. Oh, yeah. Facts about identity. Um, I deny that. And I talk more about that in the paper. So I'm okay with this kind of view. And in fact, what I do is I end up giving a causal explanation of what is going on here. I say ordinary objects all have conservative dispositions, mm -hmm. which means that they are, um, uh, they try to sort of stay the same. I mean, this is speaking anthropomorphically. They sure, try sure. to stay the same as much as they can. But, you know, they retain their properties as much as circumstances allow. So they don't want to change a whole lot. They want to change as little as they can. And so the idea is, well, the ship of Theseus has this conservative disposition. Um, then uh, as you start to replace planks one at a time, each plate plank replacement is just a very small change mm -hmm. and the only alternative to just persisting through that small change for the ship is to just stop existing altogether which seems to me like a really big change yeah and so the change uh, so because the the ship has this conservative disposition it ends up persisting through this process of gradual replacement of the planks and so by the time you go to reassemble the old planks the ship is now over here made of different planks. And so it's not available to be reassembled. So yeah, but suppose yeah. you don't replace the original planks. Suppose you uh, just take the original ship apart and now you've got a pile of planks. Well, um, because objects have these conservative dispositions, those planks are disposed to compose the same ship again when they're arranged appropriately. Mm -hmm. And so given that there isn't, you know, that ship didn't survive because you didn't replace the planks and it's not out there somewhere else. Right. Yeah. If you put those planks back together again, now they're going to compose the original ship. And so you yeah. will get the original ship reassembled. Yeah. And, and that seems really intuitive. Even just thinking about like a car, like you, you your mechanic could take your, all your car apart and then put it back together and you don't have to go to the DMV and re-register or anything like that. Yeah. Um, but well, let's say let's say they don't, you know, the classic one, like we said, is to replace the parts. If they don't replace the planks, um, they take it apart to exactly fifty percent, and they replace the other fifty. They, they reassemble the other fifty percent over here. So now yeah. you have two assembled uh, halves of the ship of Theseus. Now you have like the next sequence. The next move in the sequence is either going to make one more and one less, or this one more and this one less of the ship of these. Like, does that complicate things if we do half and half, exactly half and half? Let me make sure I understand uh, the case you're imagining. So you're like, you're saying, well, okay, suppose we remove half of the planks from the original ship. Yes. And are you saying we're removing them one at a time, like yeah. gradually? Yeah. Okay. And, and maybe we're reassembling over here uh those those same they're very same pieces oh, yeah so you start to put like okay so you take one plank from the original yep. and put it over here 
Yes. Then you take another plank from the original and you like attach it to the one over here and you yeah. start building another half of a ship. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. So my view about what's going on there is going to be basically the same as the view of what happens in the original case. Mm-hmm. The, the original ship, because of its conservative disposition, is going to persist through the gradual like, okay, losing one, another plank, another plank, another plank. Um, rather than just ceasing to exist, which is like this huge change. And so you're going to end up with this pile of planks. And as long as that original one is still existing in that like remaining half of the planks, uh, anything you try to build out of the other planks over here is going to be a different ship. Um, Okay. What is it? Does that go all the way down to the last like nut and bolt or? Yeah. So I've actually been thinking about this recently because I still need to work out some of the details of my view about disassembly and reassembly. Yeah. But currently I'm, I lean towards the, yeah, like if you gradually remove the parts, then the original object continues to exist all the way down to like, uh, uh, almost to the very end. Okay. Um, now what I, there, I have this view. Um, this hasn't been published yet. It's, it's under review somewhere, but I do have this view that there are certain kinds of part loss that destroy an object. Okay. Well, it has to be, um, uh, well, I'm, I'm not going to lay out all the details, but like if you lose a big enough part all at once or an important enough part all at once, roughly, um, that can destroy an object all at once. And this ends up being built into my continuity condition in my criteria. All right. Okay. Um, and so there are scenarios where, like, if you were to, like, just take the ship of Theseus and split it in half like the Titanic, um, that could could destroy it all at once. Okay. But if you're doing this, like, one plank at a time kind of thing, you're not going to destroy it until you get down to maybe, like, the last couple of planks and then you divide them apart from each other. Yeah. And now you're what you have left, that remaining object, you've basically just split, like, roughly in half. And so, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, all right. Last last thing on this, just really quick. And again, like you said, you're, you're still working it out. But what what counts as as gradual? Because I can imagine, you know, um, setting up a machine to disassemble, and you could dis you could set the machine to take off a part every five minutes, and that seems like it might be gradual. But then you could, if it's a machine, you can go all the way down and say like, well, thirty seconds or ten seconds or. Oh yes, good. Yeah. So actually, the word using the word gradual here is a little bit of a. Um, it's not exactly accurate. Right. And that's because it actually doesn't, the time is not what matters as far as my view goes. It's oh. more of the increments. Um, and so it's like, oh, and so okay. it's a matter of continuity and not about like slowness or fastness. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So even if, if you like took the, you know, if you, d- if you did one plank at a time, but you did it at like super speed so that it all happened within a second. Yeah still one plank at a time and so one small change following another following another and so i'm still gonna say yeah the ship actually persists through that it just at some point stops being a ship yeah and it even at some point stops being the same uh you know hunk of wood because i'm gonna say that the hunk of wood counterpart relation is exceeded at some point in there like there's not enough of the same wood you know yeah are are sequences that follow each other are they you you'd call those counterparts like the this sequence here is followed by this one and they're counterparts of each other because when, when i think of counterparts i think of lewis and i know you're not using that in the same way 
but Lewis's counterparts weren't identical. And so I'm wondering if, if you have counterparts in the series, do we even have identity at all? The counterparts are the states, those ordinary object states. Yeah. Those are numerically distinct from each other. Okay. But the object that is in those states yeah. is often going to be numerically the same object. Gotcha. So okay. this is like an endurantist twist on counterpart theory. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. In fact, so so I don't know if you know, so stage theory is like hmm. what you get when you take David Lewis's counterpart theory, but apply it across time instead of across worlds. So what's it called? Stage theory? called stage theory theory. okay and uh, it's been defended by people like ted cider and Catherine holly okay yeah sure the idea is like you know the way that objects persist over time is you have a bunch of momentary objects that are counterparts of each other Mm -hmm. so what happens to you like facts about what's going to happen to you in the future uh the truth makers for for those kinds of statements like that you will exist tomorrow are you have a temporal counterpart tomorrow. There's a stage yeah. tomorrow that is a counterpart of you. Yeah. So that's stage theory. My view, I sometimes describe as stage theory for endurantists. Okay. So I don't, I'm not a stage theorist. I think that there's an object that, or there are objects that persist over time by being identical over time. Yeah. But they have all these different states at different times. And those states can stand in counterpart relations. Or Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that state of affair has the same object, even though it's not the same state of affair as its previous one. Yes, yes. So you can have multiple states that are all distinct states, yeah. but states of not the same object, like numerically right. the same object. That's good. That's interesting. Wow. Well, Justin, this has been so much fun, man. Thanks for like schooling me on this stuff. Um, it, it's been really, really helpful for me uh, just thinking through like sortals and and. You kind of left me here like thinking like, oh, no, like now there's this view that m- most people don't agree on uh, in, in but but it's it's good. So I, I really appreciate all your, your hard work in this and your paper. Um, again, that's that just came out today in in news. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It was just published today. OK. Awesome. The day that we're recording this. I don't know. Yeah, when right. Released, uh, that's but. true. That's a good point. Good job. <laughs> Leave yeah. it to the philosopher. Um, well, that's awesome, man. So I, I appreciate your work. And um, if someone wanted to find out more of your work, like where, where could they go? Yeah, so I have a website. It's just justinmooney.net. Um, uh, Mooney is spelled with an E-Y on the end. Um, yeah, and then I've got all of my um, all of my published work uh, is there um, awesome. on the website. Yeah. Okay, yeah, and I'll leave a link in the description wherever you're getting this podcast at. Um, well, this has been fun. Hopefully we can get Justin to come back on and school me even more and, and all of us on some metaphysics and philosophy of religion type stuff. But for now, that's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.